Welcome to a special edition of BioCentury This Week. Today is day two of our Back to School podcast. We're focused on talent this year in Back to School. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Samlina Koch, Executive Editor. Lauren Martz, Executive Director of Biopharma Intelligence. The last two years have forced a reckoning for CEOs and their teams throughout the biopharma industry. It will shape the next generation of success stories. There's no new normal. The new normal for some time will be constant change. Today, we're asking how leaders view this challenge. We'll be looking at the big take-homes from the C-suite. What makes a good CEO? How do you build the right team? We'll also be digging into how companies are doing on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we will talk about women in the C-suite. I want to put out a quote right at the beginning from Andy Plump, president of R&D at Takeda. He told BioCentury, we have not just incrementally evolved the workforce, we are an entirely different workforce with a different language and different ways of working. I think that sets the tone for today's discussion. I want to jump right in and bring in Simone. Thanks, Jeff. Well, Andy was talking about, in particular, the last two years, which he calls night and day. And we've had several executives really dig into the issues of how this changing environment has challenged leaders, CEOs, the whole C-suite to really adapt very fast. It's one of the things that keeps people up at night, when to go back, how to handle the hybrid environment. And one of the themes that's really emerged is, you know, the need for agility, the need to really stay in touch with your with your staff, because just focusing the way CEOs normally do on raising money and uh, external uh, externally faced factors isn't actually going to work now or going forward. We have a very different workforce and um, we know the environment is tough. So People will leave, and they really care about company culture. So um, we asked two open-ended questions within the survey. One is, what makes a good CEO? And the other is, what are the criterion when you build a team that would rule a management hire in or out? And these were open-ended questions. So we got write-in responses, and we categorized them. So I'm going to hand off to Selena to summarize what makes a good CEO, Selena? Right. So because these were free form responses, we had to interpret the language and, and categorize them. So we have kind of four big buckets. There are um, things that are public facing skills, professional skills, people skills, or character traits. Among the couple dozen types of responses we put into these categories, um, having vision came out on top. But the professional skills you might think would rate higher such as um, being able to strategize, fundraise, having domain expertise, um, were, were pretty low down on the list. I think what, what came out is that what a CEO really, really must do right now is engage staff. So people said this in different ways, but 
basically they need to keep their middle managers and all of their staff down the line in the loop because people are, you know, they are willing to go. And in a virtual environment, you know, where ties to the company might be weakening in some ways, um, keeping your staff energized by letting them know like what we are trying to accomplish and how individuals fit into that. It seems to be especially important, um, as is then, you know, an adjacent category of communication. And I think what was really interesting is we actually broke down the question of what makes a good CEO among responses from the C-suite and responses from employees. And employees were two to three times more likely to characterize engaging with staff and communicating as a C-suite were, you know, in terms of what makes a good CEO. So basically, that is, I believe, really underrated by today's C-suite as how important it is. They're worrying about, should we get back to work? And how many days a week should people come in? And, you know, the staff is like, that's actually, talk to us is more important. One of the things that came forward is radio silence is, is a problem. So the staff can handle ambiguity. Employees understand if you don't know the answer. What they want to know is what are the kind of things you're struggling with? What are you making decisions about and understanding what's on the table? And so I think that that's a, a really important point for CEOs because quite often they think, well, we don't know what our policy is going to be on ABC, so let's not say anything until we're sure. And meanwhile, the employees are thinking they're not doing anything. They don't know about this. That kind of communication came forward, both from interviews, actually, and from survey responses. And I think, Selena, another thing that came out was a really important feature of a CEO is building a good team, right? Maybe you can dig in a little bit also into the, oh, draw someone in and rule somebody <laughs> out as a management hire. I mean, we so we asked these two, we asked these questions separately, right? We sought out, what is it you're looking for when you're hiring into the management team? And then we just put in this other question afterward, which is what would rule somebody out? And you know, you just try things when you create surveys. But in retrospect, this was kind of clever because it's the same question in principle. The person could say, well, all the things I listed as ruling in, you know, they would rule somebody out if they're not there. But actually, when you ask the question in a slightly different way, you get pretty different answers. So when you just ask people, what are you looking for? Experience rises to the top as a thing most people are going to write in. Um, and then if you lump that together with expertise that they've developed through this experience, it's even bigger. But then if you ask the question, but what would really rule somebody out? You don't get experience. Experience becomes much less important. And I don't know that job seekers always understand, you know, people trying to get to the next level. While experience is important, it's not, it's not the kind of thing that's going to make you be overlooked. Um, <clears throat> the thing that stood out the most from the rule outside of the question is somebody who can't play nice in the sandbox. So the team player, if you don't work well on teams, if you have a lone wolf mentality, if you're a bully these things are, are pretty much toxic and toxic personality traits came out very strongly as something that everybody is looking to avoid. It doesn't matter how much experience you have, you're not going to get the job. Right. I, I thought that was very interesting. I think there's a couple of points here. One is that a cultural fit is really important. So that's something that would rule you in if you're a good cultural fit. And if you're not a cultural fit, will rule you out. But it's complicated because it also spills into something related to experience, which I'm going to get into and talk learn about in a minute, 
A lot of people want change agents and we need change agents. Biopharma needs that because we've got a whole suite of new technologies, digital new ways of doing things like Andy Plump was talking about. So the way to think about this really is what you want is for cultural fit to be compatible with being a change agent. That means you actually need to create a culture that embraces change. You know, there's two sides of that coin. Now, experience is a really big one because what we're finding over and over is if you're just going to always look for people with management experience, and we've heard this over and over that there isn't enough experience management to lead all these new companies, well, that's the bottleneck, isn't it? The industry's got to start taking some chances on people who don't have the traditional experience that they're looking for. That means looking for different kinds of experiences. You know, we have Melinda Richter saying, sure, you want a few of the kind of Ivy Leagues or, you know, the traditional experience on your team, but you also want a percentage of people who have overcome adversity, got different life experiences. Maybe some people from different industries can bring different ways of thinking about things. It really feeds into this diversity question, which I'm going to throw to Lauren, just to point out, Melinda Richter is the head of J Labs at Johnson & Johnson. Diversity and inclusion is, is a very big passion of hers and a big feature of J Labs. So I think, you know, people really do understand that they need to build diverse teams, but I'm not sure how many are walking the walk as well as talking the talk. So Lauren, tell us what the, the community thinks about that. Before we get into the survey responses, that is something that, that's come up in our interviews and in the write-in responses that we got in the survey all the time is that when we're thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's not just that people want to see different races, different genders at the companies and the C-suites. It's all different kinds of diverse backgrounds can contribute to the types of insights and, and the types of insights that you get into different problems, for example. So we also included several questions in the survey about DEI, and most of those were focused on a few groups of survey respondents. We were specifically um, looking to get insights from the people who told us that they were hoping to move to the C-suite or doing the heavy lifting, learning, and working their way up. And I think the big take-home from those responses was that the majority of people actually think their organization is doing at least an okay job prioritizing diversity, equity, and inclusion. Overall, it was about 60% said that their organizations were, and only 14% said they weren't. We had some neutral responses. Everyone knows that the, the biopharma industry has been criticized for a, a lack of diversity, and so that was an encouraging, an encouraging result, suggesting that maybe things are moving in the right direction. When it's broken down by different groups of people, you know, people who are working at big companies were a lot more optimistic about how, how their organization was doing on DEI than people who are working at small private biotechs or at VCs. We saw that the younger generations were a lot more critical of their organization and were holding them to higher standards than, than the older generations. And female and non-white employees were less optimistic as well, you know, want to see more commitment to DEI. Lauren, one question I have for you. So I still sometimes get emails from people or get comments from people who still think, oh, what a nuisance, all this DI training, it's useless. And these are not necessarily young people, but they might be 
people that you sort of feel like should be the target of DEI. And I'm just wondering how many across the community actually said, oh, my company spends way too much time on DEI. Was that a feature or was, was it, are those people in the very small minority? So that was the small minority. We, we found that over half of the people think their organization's DEI training is useful. They're getting something from it. One thing that I thought was interesting is that the older generations are actually more enthusiastic about the DEI training that they're receiving at their companies. They may not be as aware of the issues with DEI at their organizations. They, they think their organizations are doing better than the younger generations, but they're willing to learn which I think was interesting. And, you know, we did get some write-in responses of people saying, this is garbage, we don't need DEI training. There are some people who, who aren't getting anything out of the training. And there are also some people who are very neutral about it, which, which may suggest that either they're not having DEI awareness and DEI training at their organization or that it, it's not sufficient. So, you know, there's room to improve. Maybe the training toolkit needs to be expanded and, and changed in some way. So I think that's really interesting, Lauren, and I think it sort of comes back to this issue of building teams. Diversity training is part of it, and as you say, a lot of the write-in comments, as far as I understand, are sort of like, just do it. Put people in the C-suite. You can't bid if you don't see it kind of thing. That does speak to building diverse teams, not only on the DEI front, as I talked about, but also just broader thinkers. One question that I've had over and over to people is like, is our industry too insular? And there's certainly a sense that there's a reason why it's, it is insular. We're a different industry. Uh, Steve Hart talked about this on the Biocentury show. We're a highly regulated industry and, and people sort of find it difficult to adjust to that. And people who might come in from tech might say, well, why don't we just do it? And you can't just do it because we're putting things into people. But on the other hand, there's many skills we can learn from banking, certainly manufacturing. We'll be talking about that later in cell and gene therapies. Different areas need skill sets that could learn from different industries. And then, you know, coming back to diversity, equity and inclusion, people who, you know, have different backgrounds, women, minorities, they bring different perspectives to the table. And that's really important also for reflecting the diversity of patients that we're trying to treat. Simone, I'd like to turn to women in the C-suite now. What did you find? One of my favorite topics. You know this, Jeff, don't you? I do. So I will tell you, we are delighted to say we found binders full of women. So (laughs) we found um, over 400 women CEOs of biotechs. And this is obviously not an exhaustive list. We found it through some personal connections and also by a cool thing that our colleague Richard Guy did by matching companies in BCIQ, our database with LinkedIn and a few little wizardry things and coming up with a list that we vetted of, as I said, for over 400 women CEOs. And let's start with just a couple of really high level things that I thought were, were very interesting. Of these women, of them are founders. So they kind of have made this decision, if you want to run a company, start a company. That's kind of where women are right now, at least 50% of the women CEOs. The other thing that I thought was very interesting is 72% of them are first-time CEOs. 
So what we're seeing among women is something that we're actually seeing sort of broadly across biotech, which is people are more anxious not to wait years and years and years to make it to the C-suite and then become CEO and work their way up. A lot of people are jumping straight in, whether it's from academia or somewhere else, to found their own companies and try their own hand at it. And so far, when we look at the data, these women are raising money, either Series A rounds or IPO rounds, roughly tracking with the industry average. You know, some are towards the top of the industry in that year, some are at the bottom. The number is small. It's certainly not game over. I mean, 400 is more than many people thought when I spoke to them, but also, you know, maybe it's no longer a drop in the ocean, but it's like still a glass in the ocean of of biotechs. So, you know, it's a long way to go, but I, I thought it was very interesting. And really this momentum among these women CEOs, we talked about an organization, the Biotech Sisterhood, which is sort of founded by Sheila Gujarati and a, and a couple of other women. Sheila was former CEO of Gossamer, as co-founder and CEO of Gossamer. You know, women are networking together in a way that the male counterparts have done historically on the golf course or, I don't know, smoke-filled rooms or wherever they go. And women are helping each other out with networking, introducing them to investors. And, you know, when you've got more seasoned women who've been successful, the call from those women to investors, whether they're male or female investors, you know, counts for more. There's certainly some momentum, which is really exciting to see. All right. Well, it is awesome to hear that, Simone. Um, as for the smoke-filled rooms, I, I can't remember the last time I was invited into one of those. At the core of Back to School is perhaps one of our best received surveys that we've ever done. We received more than 600 respondents. That is the data at the core of Back to School. This is day two of our five-day podcast series. Up next on day three, we will be talking about responses that we've received from VCs. We'll be talking compensation, everyone's favorite topic. And importantly, we will be talking about rising leaders in the biopharma industry. Look forward to having you tune in once again. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to health care and education. 